Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'll be one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange, and we're here tonight celebrating uh, the latest research in one of my favorite sessions, and that is the Journal Club. First, let me introduce our resident Journal Club uh, professor, Dr. Bill Weiss. Bill, thank you for joining us uh, again here at The Real Science Exchange. Uh, What's in your glass tonight? Well, I've got a glass of Smittix red ale from Irish. It's an Irish ale. That sounds good, Bill. Um, would you mind introducing uh, the author of the paper you decided to review tonight? Papers, changes in milk production and estimated income over feed cost of group housed dairy cows when moved between pens. Uh, the author is Dr. Alex Bach, and he's, I notice he's his location has changed so i'm not he now is at the catalina institute catalina institute for research and advanced studies that's different from the last time we talked in person yeah you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tell me what that is and what your new title is now well it's it's complicated um because it's it's been always the same institution but that institution icrea uh it's just supporting researchers to go to wherever they want so through ICREA, I was in a research institute. Then I left that institute. I still am in ICREA, and then I'm going to transfer to another university next year. So it's this is more complicated than Ohio, yeah, it's than complicated. Ohio State. So, <laughs> yeah, I should mention you are in. I don't know if you're in Bar, still in Barcelona, right? Or that's right. That's right. I'm still in Barcelona. And we met many, many years ago in person, and then been in contact with each other a lot. I should also mention he is an editor. I think you're still editor. Uh, still surviving editor. that, yeah. Still surviving that, yep, yep. So he has a big influence on the, the nutrition papers in Journal of Dairy Science. So. Oh, excellent. Well, welcome, Dr. Bach. Uh, as customary, I think we explained before, this is a virtual pub with real drinks. And so, uh, do you have anything in your glass tonight? I have. Tea, tea with milk. <laughs> oh, tea with milk. Well, there you no. go. <laughs> Very well. Uh, terrific. Um, before we dive in, I can't uh, can't proceed without welcoming uh, my friend and co-host, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Uh, welcome, Clay. You have anything in your glass tonight? Well, I have something in my in my cup. I yeah, I do have some hard cider here in my in my cup this evening. All right, I'd be disappointed yeah. if you didn't, Clay. So, Scott, okay. what's what's in your glass tonight? So I, I'm not stepping out too far on the limb, Clay. I, I've got something called Rare Breed. It's oh. uh, from Wild Turkey. Uh, it, it's pretty good, actually. I, I usually, uh, if I'm drinking Wild Turkey, I'll get the 101. I find that to be pretty good, a pretty good value. But I'm kind of liking this. So uh, with that, cheers, everybody. Here's to a great podcast. Thanks for joining cheers. us. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. The paper tonight is titled Changes in Milk Production and Estimated Income Over Feed Cost of Group House Dairy Cows When Moved Between uh, Pens. Um, Bill, why'd you settle on uh, this paper tonight for, for the Journal Club? Well, well you know, I'm, I'm a nutritionist, and there's a, a lot of good just basic nutrition papers, but I like also papers that are you know directly, almost immediately applicable to the industry. 
And this is one such paper. And this is also when I, when I worked and was an extension, I got asked this question a lot. What's the, what's the cost of moving cows? And as you, as we discussed this, there's not been a lot of research because it's really hard to do. And so you never kind of knew, you could kind of guess at an answer, but now we have some, some real data to, to help producers on, on cow management. Very well. Dr. Bach, would you kind of like to give us uh, an overview of what the, what the paper entailed? Yeah, basically the idea of the paper was exactly what Bill is saying, right? You get this question from producers, uh, you know, from the basics of nutrition that you have to make groups, uh, cows are different. They have different level of production. So what you want to do is feed them as close to the requirements as possible. But in a practical world, uh, it's difficult. And there are always excuses. Uh, the farm is not designed to do that. It's more work. My cows will drop milk. And the idea was, OK, let's evaluate this. Let's get data from the field and see if that's the case or not. So we had data from three farms. Uh, we look at three different scenarios with different diets. And we actually look at what are the consequences, not only on meal production, but on, on the most important aspect, which is income or feed cost. So the idea was just putting black and white uh, what happens when you group cows. And we just focus on income and feed cost. Uh, there will be other um, topics that would be covered and it would be really interesting to study, like uh, environmental impact of making groups or health aspects on these cows or reproduction, reproduction performance of these animals. And we didn't cover that because we cannot cover everything, right? But I think it's, it's an area of uh, very interesting research and, and, and great development. Yes, one, one, reading the introduction, one of the st statistics you give that came from a survey said something like 60, 65% of the big farms do not group by, you know, basically anything related to income over feed cost. And what, that, that surprised me. I, I knew it, went, it wasn't um, a lot, but I thought it'd be, you know, 50, 60% did it. Um, what, what do you think are some hindrances for producers not doing this? I think what you read in the literature is uh, excuses on, on barn design and complication. I think that the most uh, frequent answer that I get is afr they're afraid of losing milk. And milk is easier to quantify than income or feed cost. Uh, we don't really know what income or feed cost in a farm is. So if they only look at milk uh, in the tank, they get afraid of it. Uh, of it you know? That's one thing. And the other is simplicity. They have labor problems uh, and they are afraid that if they make two rations, people will make more mistakes. So they think that, hey, just one ration is simpler, less room for mistakes. Mm -hmm. These are the two main deterrents that I see in the field for applying this. Uh, and this research directly addresses the, I, what I agree with you is the biggest thing is when you move cows, they're going to crash and burn and you're going to lose all this stuff. Or that's what they say. And they said this paper is one of the first that's attempted to address that. The, the, again, the cow cost of moving. Right. And, and the beauty of it is that, yes, sometimes cows do drop too much in milk and that causes a loss in, in, in income, uh, overfeed cost and, and profit, but sometimes not. So it, it's, it's a bit of an art. Uh, you really have to make the rations right and move the animal at the right time. So it's, it's not as easy as it thinks. Uh, in theory, it should be working very nicely, but uh, you can mess it up and you can just made the wrong decision by grouping your cows. So that's a, that's what I found also interesting in this paper. There is not everything is, is always good, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, the fact you use three farms that 
obviously makes it a more uh, a broader interpretation. It's not just one farm because you know, a lot of things affect cow movement and pens and everything else. So that's definitely a strength of this paper is the fact it is over three three different farms. I, I, they were all in Spain, correct? I can't remember the details. Uh, there were no, no. There were some in. Uh, I don't. Let's see. There is. I think there is one in Italy and two in Spain. Okay. And what sizes were they? There were mid-sized farms. The, the smallest one was uh, 300 cows, and the biggest one was close to 1,000. So it's, okay. it's a variety of, of farms, yeah. So the, so the other part of this that I like, and, you know, the second question here is, you know, even, even in dairies where they have a lot of groups, uh, the number of different rations that are on the farm, right? So, so, so these were pen moves and diet changes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that really strikes me. I mean, you, you, you walk to a farm and we have a very good example. I mean, there are many farms in Europe like that. They are milking a thousand cows or 800 cows. They have different groups. They have even a primiparous group cows and a multiparous and a fresh and blah, blah, and they're all feeding the same diet. <laughs> and guys, you have to make a different TMR because you cannot fit everything in the same TMR for all the cows, you might as well, you know, mix a different proportion of ingredients when you go to that pen or those pens. They don't do that. And that really strikes me. Yeah, to me, you know, there, there are costs to moving, labor, management, etc. So if you're going to move cows, make it worthwhile and have, have different diets that yeah. are appropriate for the group. So, yeah. And what this paper shows is that there is a lot to gain, actually. Uh, just in, in terms of income or feed cost, uh, if you do it right, uh, you can make 20, 30 cents per cow a day extra. Uh, and that's a lot of money at the end of the month and at the end of the year. Setting aside what I said before on environmental impact and reproduction and maintaining the body condition of the animals and all that. I think, like I said, this is hard research because, you know, you're, you got pens, so you don't, it's hard to follow an animal. And I thought the way you approach this was very good. So would you give a, you know, not in minute detail, but how you actually calculated the change in income over because when you have, when you're only measuring, for example, feed intake for a group of cows, you don't know what the cow did. So could you go right. into that a little bit, please? Yeah, that was actually the trickiest part of the paper. Eh? Uh, for us, it was very easy to predict. So what we did is we were tracing the, the cows uh, over time. So we have daily milk weights. So it's very easy to predict if you give me data on the last month of milk production on a daily basis of a cow, I can very much predict how much milk she's going to produce in the next 10 days or next 21 days. We know the milk curve shape and we can do that for every cow. So that was the easy part. The most difficult part was, okay, how much are they eating, right? So we know how much they eat in the group, but what is the intake for every cow? So what we did is we used the NASM equations. Uh, the new equation from the NRC 2001, now it's in 2021, and it's two set of equations. So one uses animal data and the other one uses ration data. So we actually use uh, the two equations to forecast intake. And then we took the average of these two equations and assigned it to every animal. And of course, then, if you take the average of all the animals in a pen, it should coincide with the actual intake of the pen. And if that wasn't the case, then the deviation, it was like 2%, 3%, whatever it was, we assigned that percent deviations to every cow. So then when we recalculate the average of every cow, then it's actually the same as the average of the pen. Okay. Once we know the intake of every animal, then we can calculate the income or feed costs relatively easily. Yeah, 
I said that that's uh, like I said I know when I thought of doing that and I thought that was a, a great part of this paper really really thought that was a good idea how you did that and and you did you, you ignored the moves from the fresh pen right because the predictions are too messy and right and really early lactation right i mean early lactation uh cows are just driven by genetics mainly so it, that will have a big impact on on how much they perform and, and and everything so and of course because we also need data to forecast future milk production we need some time before we do the pen right so and the fresh pen, some cows were there only for 21 days. In some farms, they were there for 30 days. In some of them were for 40. So it, it was it was messy. So we could not use that that data to do that. And um, did you on the on the diets? These were farmer. They it was their diets. You didn't work with saying let's change the diet to this. But this is what they were feeding. Correct. This this is what they were feeding. We didn't do any intervention. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the some of the changes are pretty small you know yes. and, and and but that's was their choice not yours so yeah okay. yep. yeah and what is nice to see is that sometimes this, the the changes are too small and that does not compensate the loss in milk production and yep. and therefore right. it didn't work so it was it was not good that's one thing that because people are so afraid of losing milk when they go from a high diet to a low diet they tend to put a little bit more protein, a little bit more energy, just in case my cows don't lose a lot of milk and they end up not making it work. So I, uh, Alex, I'm, I'm curious when, when they were, when these pen moves were made, do you know the, do you know any details about, were they moving multiple cows at a time? You know, do you know any of those details? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pen movements typically, and, and that was the case in this study, they take place once a week uh, because that's when the cows are dry typically. So on a Tuesday or on a Thursday typically. So they were moving animals. All the cows that need to be dried, I don't know, 20 animals, poof. So now I have 20 spots to move cows. So then I move my high cows to medium cows, my medium cows to low cows. So they were always moved in groups of five and more animals. Yeah. Okay. And, and was the producer that made the decisions as to what cows moved, or did did you provide insight, or how how was that chosen? No, that that was the that was the tricky part as well because these producers are using a software that's called AldoMilk that, that we developed. That software uh, provides assistance to the producers using artificial intelligence on when to move the cows and what to feed to the cows. So I had to talk to these guys and say, hey, don't pay attention to algo milk. Just move the cows whenever you feel the need to move them. So that was a decision made by, made by the producers. Okay. And then if, if you could then kind of, and, and there's three farms again, and they, they didn't all do the same. I mean, the, the results were different. So if you'd kind of just walk through the, the big picture results from, from, you have, I just labeled them farm A, B, and C. But can kind of on the big big picture results and what you found in, in change in milk, change in intake, and then ultimately change in IOFC then. Well, it was so in, in Farm A, we basically had uh, three different types of, of groups. We have animals that were uh, on a high diet and they were moved into a medium production diet. And then we have a group of Primeapurus cows that they were moved to a medium production diet as well. And then we have the tail enders, right? So the medium cows, the medium production animals were moved to a low production animals. 
And in that farm, uh, everything worked very nicely in terms of income and feed cost, except for when the cows were moved from the medium to the low. And the reason of, uh, of that failure uh, was that, uh, what I said before, the differences in nutrients between the ration for medium producing animals and low producing animals were very small. And the price difference was not uh, big enough either. So these guys, when they moved from medium to low, they lost about two kilos of milk. And the savings in diet did not compensate that loss. In the other scenarios, they always worked uh, and they made uh, about 20 cents more per cow on day and, 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 and it worked very nicely. One interesting thing in this farm, and we also saw that in another farm, and we also found that in the literature, uh, we were moving in the primiparous groups, right? So we have cows of uh, primiparous animals groups. They move from this group to a medium production group that has a mixture of animals. So it has animals, they are medium producers, so they are about 35 uh, liters or so. But of course, there are multiparous cows there. So we were expecting, well, maybe these primiparous cows, when they go into the multiparous cows group, uh, they're going to stumble because they're going to be afraid of the more adult animals. And when we did the maths, we were expecting a, a bigger drop of milk that we actually observed. And if you look in the literature, there, is, there seems to be a repeatable scenario that when primiparous cows are moved into multiparous, they are resilient. They, they don't drop as much milk as one would expect. That was a bit of a surprise, um, but that's what we found. And we found that in farm A, and it also occurred in farm B, and also in farm C. So it, it was repeatable in the three farms. So, so Alex, I, I, I am curious, uh, so the the changes from the, you know, the permeperous groups to the other, you know, to, to the other diet, they were a little later, you know, further along into lactation, right? I, th I think they averaged what, maybe 190 to over 200 days in milk <clears throat> at when those pen changes would, were made. Could you speculate? Do you think you'd see the same thing if it was happening earlier in lactation? Yeah, probably not. Absolutely. Yeah. I, in, in fact, we have that discussion in the paper where we, one of the reasons why we think uh, these cows didn't lose uh, as much milk as we thought, and that's something that people don't realize is that, okay, we're moving the primiparous cows from one pen to the other, and that would apply to all the cows. Eh? Um, these cows that we're moving are very advanced in lactation, so they produce less milk, and they're probably overfed. So they're getting more, more nutrients than what they need. And they're not producing more milk because genetically they cannot do that. And they're just building body fat and, and accretion. So when you move them, they might actually be intimidated by the multiparous cows and, and their intake might be a little bit lower. But still, they're able to get all the nutrients they need because before they were overfed. So had we moved these cows before, uh, early in lactation, I don't know, uh, because milk production is still pretty flat in this uh, primiparous cows. So it's not a matter of, of milk production, but it's a matter of growth. These guys are growing uh, from day one after calving, right? They are, they are still developing. So if we give them more time to grow, uh, 200 more days, uh, by the time of movement, they probably have a lower nutrient requirement and that allows them to, to cope better with the change. Do, do you remember, and I, I looked, I couldn't see this, on crowdedness in these pens, like 
both stall feeding bunk space per head and and stalls were they crowded or uh, right no this uh, and that's quite common in, in Spain and in Italy uh, where this uh, took place uh, the software that we use is called Algomilk again um, it it keeps track of stocking density and the average stocking density in these three herds is around ninety eight percent so they actually have more space uh, available for the cows eh, than they are not crowded at all no. Do you think you know in the U.S. that's would be it would be more common to have over overstocking, hopefully yeah. not by too much. But do you think these results would be if you were at ten ten percent or twenty percent over, or do you think they'd be a little more dramatic of a loss? Uh, it's it's difficult uh, to answer de- depending on how you calculate the stocking density and, and how you look at at your animal numbers, right? Uh, if if what's restricting or or it's the, if the limiting factor is feed bank access, um, I wouldn't be that worried. If the limiting factor is the pan, uh, the cubicles or lying space, then I would be more worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I say that or I think that is because uh, cows are only spend eating for maximum five hours a day. So even if it is a, a little. Uh, feedback space, they can take turns and they will take turns. Cows are no conflict animals. So they will learn very rapidly who's the boss and who's not, and they will patiently wait. So if we have overcrowding in terms of uh, feedback space, but we make sure that there is always feed available and it's fresh feed in the feedback, uh, I think it will be okay. Now, if there is a limitation of bedding or, or cubicles, that's a different thing because the cows, they do need to lay down uh, good 11, 12 hours a day. And if it's overcrowding, that's not going to happen. Then uh, I'm looking at this table here that on the changes in nutrients before and after the changes. And, you know, protein drops, it varies a bit on the herds, but usually it's less than one, crude protein less than 1% unit. Usually NELs, you know, a couple percent drop. What, what do you, is, is again, these are pretty subtle and, and pretty small. And I know that you, you can't answer it from the data, so I'm asking you to extrapolate a bit here. But do you think, you know, would if you were making these changes, maintain protein, drop energy, drop them both based on you know, production, expected production? Or how would you do the nutrients? And if you could, let's limit it to just two pens. You can only have two diets, a high and a low group or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a very difficult question. And it's, it's a question that we nutritionists tend not to make ourselves. And, and, and every time I, I do some uh, teaching and, and, and also talk to nutritionists, the single most important question that we should ask when we do a ration is at what level of production are we going to be the ration for that pen? And when you ask that question, there is no answer. It's, well, I look at the average and, you know, because I'm afraid of losing milk, I just put two more liters of milk. Um, and why two liters and not four or one or minus one? And, and that makes a big difference because a ration for 80 pounds costs much less than a ration for 100 pounds. Yeah. And if only 10% of the cows are able to use those extra nutrients, you're going to lose money. So overfeeding, it's, it's, it's very complicated. So back to your question. Uh, when I do rations for groups, I make rations that are much more different than this. 
So I usually go for one and a half, two points uh, in percentage in protein. And energy-wise, it's also point, uh, 0.2 or so. So it's it, much, much bigger changes than this. But again, these were changes made by nutritionists. Yeah, and yeah. I'm always afraid of, of looking at, at milk, milk losses. Yes, and the other, you know, there's only so many spaces, so you got to keep the pans full. So there is sometimes you can't move the cows you want to move. But would you, if again, let's just say you can only have two diets. So would you have maybe one pen balance for the the top third production and the so again, I know you have to pick a milk yield. How would you okay. do that? <laughs> yeah. What I do when I try to select to make, so if I have a group of cows and it, okay, uh, at what level of production am I going to feed these animals? My first approach is I look at histogram and I do the, the percentage. Uh, so I look at the quantiles and I want to make a ration that satisfies at least 70% of the animals in my pen. 30% of those uh, above a little, uh, I don't know, 40 or 30 liters, so, sorry, 80 or 90 pounds, they will not be satisfied by the diet. So that's okay. And they will lose a little bit of condition. Hopefully they will put it back later on. So I would do that. So I would look at my high pen and I would make a ration for these guys to cover the 70% of their needs. No, not 70% of their needs, 70% of the animals in that pen. And then I would do another ration for the low. And there I would probably go a little bit lower even. So I would go for 60, but depends on the genetics of the herd uh, or the body condition. So it's, it's a little bit of an art and that's the tricky thing, right? It's, we don't have a method to decide at what level of production we want to feed this group. So on the, so, so, so in the higher group, you're basically going a standard deviation above the mean. Pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 1.6. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and in the lower group, I will go to 60% or so. And would you, um, I know we're getting off track here from the actual paper, but we'll get back to that in just a minute. But would you on this, uh, when you're, you you know, you set up the group and you would basically do protein and energy the same, not say I'm going to make sure there's a little, and maybe balance to two standard deviations for protein, one standard deviation for energy for the means, or would you do both essentially the same, same over no, no, I, I'm more, I do a bigger difference in protein than in energy. Okay. okay. Well, well, yeah. you're right. You're right. Cause that's what I do too. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I do. <laughs> okay. Um, another thing you did, which I think is really important when you do this kind of stuff is you looked at sensitivity. In other words, you know, you, you have to, in a lot of your calculations, you set a milk price, you set a feed price, and that's what we have to do. But then you also said, what happens when milk goes up, up or down 10%, feed goes up and up or down 10%. Would, would you discuss what you found on, on as those two things? And they can change independently. One, you know, one can go up and one can go down. But right. what, what did you find on that? Yeah, well, we found that it's if milk prices go up, then making groups is a little bit less interesting. So the higher the meal price, the more resilient your farm will be to a single diet. Uh, in the feed cost is opposite. So the lower the feed cost, the more interesting, uh, the less interesting it is to have groups. And of course, the, the, the most interesting scenario is when you have high feed cost, 
and low meal prices. That's where it's almost mandatory to make groups if you want to survive in the dairy business. Well, we we have that latter scenario of the U.S. for sure yes. right now. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not an uncommon scenario in the U.S. and every uh, yeah and everywhere else. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. But the trend was the same. Eh? So uh, the farms that when they move one cow from the one pen to the other, uh, they had a positive uh, outcome. They still had a positive outcome. But as milk price went up, that positive outcome was a bit lower. Eh? So the, it was a straight line. It's not that it changes uh, direction. It's just the same. But the outcome is, is a bit smaller. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of the... I, I really like how you you put a graph in here for each farm and each each pen change. Yeah. Yes, I thought uh, I I thought that was pretty fascinating looking at these and um so, so you were you were comparing twenty one days before the move to twenty one days after and 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 you've got a prediction in there both for milk and income over feed costs and um, looking at most of these graphs it looks like it look it looks like in general the milk yield is lower than predicted for about 10 days post pen move yeah um is that has that been seen before or i'm curious your comments about that yeah there are some studies old studies eh, from the 70s and even the 60s where they were looking at this and and what you see in the literature is that they have decreases of four percent six percent new production very transient the first day maybe the first week no more than that so it really coincides with what is in the, it's in the literature um then then i guess getting back to this sensitivity thing which i, I want to stick with what we were on you know, you give the, these graphs like Clay was talking really good. It's it's means you moved you know ten ten cows in a in a move. Did did you look at say in a when a single move when they moved ten? How much did cow to cow variance? Or did you look at that? Were they all dropped two three kilos, or did some not do anything and some just crashed? Ah, I did not look at that, and I don't remember that from my from the top of my head. Um, my guess is that there would be some variation, um, but I don't remember how much it was. Okay. But that for sure there is variation. Yeah, I just be you know, is it if you could if there was, you might be able to tease out you know what what cows are more susceptible to a pen move right. and which ones can handle it. So. For sure. For sure, yeah, and that's actually what Algomil does. It, it looks at the expected production, the drop uh, that you expect when you move one cow from one pen to the other, and then it will determine the exact moment of moving them. Okay. Um, I, I did have one one more question on sensitivity. You have graphs here where you know change in feed price, change in uh, milk price. Um, the effects on of, of changing feed, feed prices were pretty consistent across the three farms. But yes. the change in milk price, two of the farms did about the same thing that the cost, the income over feed cost changed about the same as feed, as milk price went up but one, or down. One of them changed a lot. Farm, I don't know which farm that is. Farm C, Farm C, I think it was. Farm C, really, that the slope of that line is, is, probably twice 
what the other ones are. Do you, do you ever why that farm was so sensitive to milk prices? Well, that farm it, it's it's peculiar because they they have a, a pen movement that it's. At some point, I debated whether to put it or not in the paper. But I said, hey, this is reality. This is what people do. These guys had uh, a primiparous, a group of primiparous cows that were moved to a high-yielding cows. So uh, it, it's a very strange and unnatural movement, no? if you wish. Um, so, and of course, yeah. they lose a lot of money. Uh, these these primiparous cows, when they go to a high diet, they just stumble and, and they had uh, two kilos less of milk. And they lose about uh, fifty cents uh, per cow a day, and and there was very and there was very little difference in feed price per ton, right? Absolutely, There's a very small feed cost yeah. difference. Which is that. the other caveat when you do grouping. So people just look at nutrients, and sometimes because of feed prices, uh, when you try to reduce energy and protein, somehow the diet doesn't decrease as much in price. So you actually have to look at okay, how much does it cost me? A mega cow of energy. How much does it cost me a pound of protein? And and then use that because if your pound, if, if the cost per pound of protein or the cost per mega cow of energy is higher or equal in the receiving diet, you're gonna lose money. Even if that diet is a bit cheaper in price. Okay. So and that's what happened here. So I think that's why Bill, uh, it's it's so sensitive to meal prices in, in this farm because it's a very upward pen movement. And economics and dollars and euros are a little hard. To, you know, we can't be too too conclusive on this. But do you have suggestions on how much the price per kilo or price per pound of feed should should differ? And if you could do it in percentage rather than euros or dollars, right? Yeah, uh, percentage would be. Uh, let's see. I always try to have a difference at least of 20 euros between okay. the original diets and, 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 and the following one or the receiving one. And typically feed costs in Europe are, we're talking about 280, 250. So we're talking about a percentage wise, uh, 12%, 13%. Okay, so a fair, a fair amount to make it worthwhile. It has to be drastic, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that's what we need to understand. The, the outcome is not, more meal production is more income or feed cost. Exactly, exactly. And and yes, we will lose milk for a few days, but it's only a few days. Then the cows are on on their spot. They are on their requirements. They are very efficient. Uh, we always tend to look at the cows as being very efficient at early lactation, and we think that these are the cows that make money in a farm, and that's totally true. But then we have the tail the tailenders, and those are the ones that they they eat away all the benefits from the high producing animals. So every small improvement in efficiency of these low-producing animals is a huge opportunity for producers to make more money. So, so the feed costs you were mentioning is that that's is that euros per ton? Yes. Okay, and then the um, the base milk price that you were using um, to do the original calculations. I think it was thirty-two. It was thirty-two euros per liter. That's correct. And I think I think right now I was doing the math on that. I think that's about sixteen dollars per hundred weight uh, in yes. the U.S. But I love the sensitivity analysis. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, nowadays here in Europe the meal price has gone up. So instead of being thirty-two, it's fifty. Okay, so it's fifty cents. Uh, ah. Yeah, so it's in a milk over there. So that's well, right. But. 
but feed costs are very, very high as well. So <laughs> when you look at income and feed costs, it's still in the order of 10 euros per cow and day. So it's not that they're making more money. They're just able to pay for the feed, which before they were not. <laughs> did, did you, again, it may have been in there and I missed it, but did you do anything on either body condition or body weight? Because you know, no. they made a lost milk, but or they might have come back in milk, but they're still losing yeah. it condition or we don't have data on body condition we do have data on, on body weight in one farm and because it was only one farm i did not include it in the paper okay um there were small changes in body weights actually okay so we we actually were seeing that these paper scouts were were like that and then when they were moved uh, they stopped putting weight so we okay. we did see some changes in, in body weight absolutely so on farm a if i if i'm not mistaken so along those lines, were you able to monitor uh, milk components? Yeah, milk components was there. Uh, milk components was on a monthly basis, right? Okay. So, and this was a change that was that took place once a week. So we had data from maybe thirty days before, maybe ten days later. So it's it was difficult to use that data. So we decided to stay away from it. Yeah, but yeah, that would be that's a very important question, and that's some research that needs to be done. Eh? Uh, it's not only milk; it's also the components of that milk uh, that dictates the price and the income of the cost. Another calculation you made was you looked at change in nutrient intake and projected milk change from from just the nutrients, and then you compared that to what they actually did. Yes. Could you go into the results of that a little? Because they were those a little bit different farm to farm, but they were. To me, pretty consistent on what you found. Yeah, they were very consistent, and they were surprised. I mean, they, in general, they were surprising because they always lost less milk than it would that it would be predicted. Okay, um, we were predicting, I don't know, that uh, the cows would lose two kilos of milk, but they only lost half a kilo. So. And that could be due to many reasons, eh? but uh, I think the, the main reason is that the cows were overfed before we moved them. So that's why they don't lose as much. Eh? And, and, and we assume that they were eating that much, but they're they're overfed. So when they go to a diet that, that provides less nutrient, because before they had spurred nutrients, now they lose a little bit less milk. Okay. But they were very consistent, yeah. uh, especially in primiparous cows. Yeah. You know, I would have guessed if you know, because of the change, it would upset the rumen a little bit and all. They would have been a little uh, less efficient, at least for a exactly. short term. And they'd actually be, yeah. be find, you'd find the opposite of what you found. So Absolutely. And that's what we were expecting. And we were expecting, okay, the animal will be upset because she lost her friends and now she's a new pen with intimidating cows. She needs to adapt to the social hierarchy. Now she's getting a different diet, a little bit more fiber perhaps. So the rumen is going to be a little bit clunky. But they, they continue to produce milk. Uh, they lost some milk, but not as much as we predicted. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it, that was surprising. But <laughs> do, do, do you know of anybody done things like you got all these chewing monitors and rumination monitors and so on? Do you know of anybody's done studies with those looking at when you move a cow or cows? I'm not aware of that. I'm, I'm not aware. either, but yeah. that, with the technology we have now, those types of things would be, I think, very interesting to see. It would be very interesting. One, one concern I have with the rumination um, devices is that you, you always need 
a measure of intake because the cows that ruminate the most are typically the ones that are in acidosis or are the ones that are actually eating more. That's why they ruminate more. Um, so, and people think, oh, my rumination is going down, so now I have a ruminant problem. And it's really an intake problem. So it's, it's, it's difficult data to interpret without having the actual runaway intake. I'm thinking if they did something like you, where they follow it pre and post and do some predictions on what it should have been, if, if nothing changes, and then look at the deviation from the expected, something like that. But that would be a really cool study, Bill, yeah. There is a drop, transient drop in milk. Do you have any suggestions on how to, what producers might do to, you're not going to eliminate it. I don't think that's possible, but any suggestions on ways to reduce the negative, even though it's transient, the negative effect of move? I don't think we can avoid that. I think it's because we, we, we're changing the animal from one social structure to the other. And, and it's pretty good literature saying that, that, that that's going to have a toll. And the other is that we, we, we're giving them less nutrients. So we cannot expect the same outcome with less nutrients. But for sure, eh, when you do pen movements, uh, one thing that I would make sure I do is um, they have enough space and they're receiving pen and that the cows are moved in groups. Group meaning five or more. And so if, if there's not a lot you can do to stop the, the change, the transient drop in milk, and you, again, you just have to make the change worthwhile. You have to exactly. change the cost, feed cost enough. You live with, live with the lost milk, but you just have to make it worthwhile. Right. And I have a, a producer in, in, in Italy and in, in the Piemonte area that he was surprised because he actually started looking at these groups and, and making groups and changing all the diets and, and all that. He had one sing, he moved from one single diet to group feeding and he went from one single diet to three diets. And the guy is very, very good. He's an average production of 41 liters per day. And he was surprised because overall milk production from the herd did not decrease. So he could not understand why having some cows that were losing milk when they were moved, where did that milk go, right? So it's, it's you don't lose it. It's, it's just a transient lose, but you actually compensate later on with these cows being better and being more efficient and, and all that. So it's the total milk production of a herd when you make groups is actually not lower than when you don't. I, I was curious, does it make any, does it make any difference, you know, when you're actually making these moves relative to, you know, either feeding time or feed availability. Yeah. Feed availability is crucial. Yeah. This, this thing will crash if, if cows don't have feed in front and the feed is not fresh. Uh, that that's for sure. Yeah. That's, that's important. Yeah. So I asked this question to every, every, uh, author, what, what's, what's next? Are you going to keep this line of research going or? What, what other projects are you working on along yeah. those lines? What this project has uh, brought to my attention is, do we really need a primiparous cows group? So you go to a farm, even if they have a single diet or they have no groups, very likely they will have a primiparous cows group. Is that really necessary? That's the question I'm trying to answer now. So I'm looking at uh, what happens when you actually mix primiparous cows with multiparous cows. Are you losing milk? Are you losing reproduction? Um, so that's that's what I'm working on now. That's a good question because 
for years I've all that's my standard recommendation. If you if you get right, that's it, the makes, first, it makes sense. First grouping is yeah. heifers or first lactation and everything else. It makes sense, so. but there is no data to support it, so. and <laughs> it just makes sense and and, and and it's okay. Yeah, but then when you look at things as it happens in this study, where hey, when these guys are mixed with multiplers, they seem to be okay. They do actually very well. So do we really need that? Can we use that pen? that is uniquely devoted to primrose cows to some other cows. So can we do something with it? So that's, that's what I'm trying to answer now. That would be a good, that's a good question and answer. So I'm glad you're doing that. All right. Very well, Bill. Um, you always do a great job with these, right? But I think tonight you really outdid yourself. This has been a, a very interesting paper, very interesting conversation. And the guest uh, was top-notch as well. Uh, Dr. Bach, you did a great job. In fact, Clay, I think we need to invite him to uh, give a lecture on our Real Science Lecture yes, Series. So yes. maybe we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch, uh, Dr. Bach, uh, <laughs> to see if we can uh, arrange for that. Um, you know, it's been a great conversation. I'd like uh, to leave the audience with just uh, uh, one thought. If you guys had one key takeaway for the audience, what would that be? And, and Clay, would you mind uh, starting us off? Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash NitroSure. Yeah, my, I mean, my key takeaway is from the sensitive, <laughs> sensitivity analysis, right? And as we said as you were saying at the beginning in times of lower milk prices and high feed costs having 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 different uh diets available and making the the um and different uh different groups available it's uh it's it's really huge economically um i think we get lazy at times you know we we get lazy when we have these really high price milk, uh, high priced milk uh, periods with lower feed costs, and and you know only having one lactating diet. But it's 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 really huge economically uh, when times get tougher. Yeah, thanks, Clay. Uh, Doctor Bach, what kind of final uh, comments do you have? I think I like to invite the audience to experiment a little bit with it. So don't be afraid uh, of losing milk and, and look beyond milk, uh, put in place mechanisms in the farm that allows you to measure IOFC. That's the ultimate goal. And also just playing with this and, and being in different farms, doing different rations, I've been surprised how flexible cows are. So don't be afraid of making a mistake. If something goes wrong, it will go wrong for a short period of time. You can correct it. You can change the diet right away and the cows will, they're plastic. They will recover. So it's not that you're losing all the milk and you made a mistake and you're doomed. So just experiment with it and, and play with it. Very good. And Dr. Weiss, any final words of wisdom for us? Yes, I'm going to repeat what, what Alex said pretty much. And that is, you know, milk, change in milk is only half the equation. And it's, it is income over feed cost um, that, that matters. And if you're, I think we just accept you're going to lose some milk. So make the diet change enough to pay for what we know is going to happen and it, don't ignore the milk loss but remember the ultimate goal is to maximize income over feed cost yep well said bill gentlemen this is uh this has been a good one i uh, appreciate you uh, sharing your research your time your passion 
Uh, I'm sure the audience is enjoying it. And speaking of the audience, we want to thank our little listeners for coming along once again uh, to join us here at the pub. We hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at valchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Thank you.